Illustrated. I'm your co-host, Matt Fisher. I'm also your co-host, Ryan Whedon. Two guys that dated for a hot minute, a hot decade ago. Now we review hot movies. On this hot day in August. It is a little warm today. Yeah. Dog days of summer. Yeah. Speaking of which, we have a dog here with us today. We do. Special uh, friend of the pod, <laughs> Lucy. Say hi, Lucy. Hello! We're here. We're queer. And Get used to it. <laughs> I can't imagine somebody's 40 episodes in and is still uncomfortable <laughs> with the fact that we're gay. Like, Remember that episode of The Simpsons where they had bears? We're here! We're queer! We don't want any more bears! We're here! We're queer! We don't want any more bears! Hey, Homer, that's a pretty catchy chant. Where'd you learn it? Oh, I heard it at the mustache parade they have every year. Oh, The Simpsons ahead of their time. Well, I always think about Homer's phobia. Hot stuff coming through. Oh, yeah. Because, really, that's kind of making fun of gay people. Mm-hmm. But it's really making fun of Homer and his irrational phobia. Yeah. I felt, I remember seeing that episode, because what, that came out in like 96, 97, somewhere in there. Yeah. So I was a confused teenager at the time, feeling very mixed emotions about an episode like that. Yeah. But now, especially in the gay community, it's a cherished Oh, episode. I love it. Yeah, I think it's hilarious now. Uh, John Waters is the guest voice yeah. on it. So. That, and that lends a lot of credibility to it. Yeah. But I don't know, it's, it's weird to, you watch it and they're really leaning into a lot of gay stereotypes. Totally. But they also kind of turn, like, the masculinity thing on its head. It's like, yeah, they're all, like, steel workers, which is supposed to be, like, very man manly. Mm-hmm. And they're all a bunch of dandies. Yeah. But they're also still all steel workers. We work hard. We play hard. Everybody dance now! Uh, what's new? What's, what's, uh, anything awesome happened this week to you? I had a very busy week. Uh, and doing a double feature that, that was, it was hard to squeeze in. Oh, tell me about it. I will. <laughs> uh, but I did manage to find a spare 77 minutes to watch a little film called Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. Oh, shit. We are going to rent cameras, buy film stock, hire a crew. We are shooting this masterpiece. I'd heard about this movie for years, but yeah, never yeah. actually watched it. And so I was like, you know what? This is going to be the week. Uh-huh. This is, this is going to be when we watch it. And, uh, or when I watch it. <laughs> Tight 77 minutes. <laughs> and it, it's part like Roger Corman monster movie, part sort of Italian giallo film. Okay. Where it's like atmospheric and moody with like macabre deaths and stuff like that. I couldn't tell you the plot. I don't know why people kept laying <laughs> on that bed. They knew full well that, like, it was going to eat you. But... <laughs> Isn't it, like, 400 years old, too? Didn't it get cursed, like... Yeah, it... yeah, maybe. Man, they tell you to change a mattress, like, every 10 years. Because, <laughs> yeah, it... It was, it, was, it was a perplexing film. It wasn't without merit, though. Like, it had some sort of beautiful atmospheric stuff, because, like, when you got sucked into the bed... Mm-hmm. The camera was always, like, it shot, like, an underwater thing where, like, whatever it was eating would dissolve. So, like, someone's hand got stuck in there. And you would see, like, acid eating away at the flesh of the hands oh, okay. and stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, the, mo- the movie wasn't without merit. And I'm always sort of fascinated by movies where inanimate objects are killers. Yeah. And I feel like Deathbed really uh, uh, 
sets the bar for that genre of oh, film. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I also was interested in uh, <laughs> watching the movie because when I was seven, I wrote a short, scary story called Deathbed. Oh, yeah. Also about a bed that eats people. Do you by any chance have that laying around somewhere? Uh, I'm going to have to dig it up. I don't know where it went, but I, just, I know that I have a story. That would be a great Easter egg to, uh, to, drop, out, to drop on people. <laughs> what about you? Did you see anything? I did. I watched uh, the Russian movie Leviathan from a couple years oh, ago. Oh, sure. Um, can't stop thinking about it. Okay. It was really good. I liked it a lot. Yeah, that it has like a, like a what is that like a whale skeleton or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I couldn't tell if it was real or not, but mm. it doesn't matter. It plays into the uh, the story really well. Um, and it's like I, I realized that maybe the first movie I've ever seen in Russian, which is kind of see Russian arc. No, you never seen a Tarkovsky film? No. Um, Got a blind spot. I'm realizing. No uh, uh, Eisenstein movies? No, I don't think so. Uh, that's Battleship. Oh, okay. Um, uh, by which I mean the 2012 <laughs> Battleship with... <laughs> Rihanna? <laughs> yeah, that's fun. <laughs> well, you know, you're fresh off Valerian. I figure maybe you're <laughs> just going through the uh, Rihanna catalog. Filmography, <laughs> not music. I have seen Battleship. I am... Uh... Sort of a shame to admit. Who's the Who's the guy in that? The hot guy, Mr. Vanilla. Uh, Was it a Hemsworth? I don't remember. <laughs> all attractive white men, you default to Hemsworth. <laughs> they all look the same to me. <laughs> all attractive white men. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, he was the guy who played like John Carter in the John Carter movies. Oh, movie. Taylor Kitsch. Yeah, isn't that the guy in Battleship? I really don't remember. I'm I'm sorry. He could be confused as a, a Hemsworth. I could see that. Yeah. It's also got uh, the guy with the funny face from uh, Friday Night Lights is in it. One of the murderers that they never talk about again on that show for some reason. Friday Night Lights? Yeah. It was I've like never a mur- seen the show. It was like a murder that happened in season two, and then they just like kind of never talk about it again. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a weak point in that show. Clear mind, my eye, or <laughs> clear hearts, or whatever the saying is. <laughs> uh, full minds, full hearts, brave minds. No, no full I... hearts, eyes full of tears. This is Paul Blart Mall Cup all over again. <laughs> yeah, what is it? Clear eyes, full hearts. Clear eyes. We'll never well, you know. see Visine, and you can be on the high school football team. Yeah, Ben Stein plays a very important role in that show. Is he really? No. Oh. He did Visine ads, so. Oh, I must have missed those. Not missing much. Yeah, I remember watching Ben Stein, win Ben Stein's money a mm-hmm. lot in junior high and high school. He must have been kind of smart. Too bad he's like a weird Christian conservative. Right wing, yeah. Jumpstart Jimmy Kimmel's career. Oh, yeah? He was the co-host on that That's show. That's right. Then he went on to do the Man, Man show. show. Oh, my God. The, like, ode to male fragility. I <laughs> <laughs> wonder how Jimmy Kimmel feels about that show now. Because he, he seems kinda... to have evolved from that. Yeah. At least in the past 17 years or whatever it's been. Yeah, he seems a little bit more uh, 
sensitive to things now. Yeah. I think once you get a talk show, you don't really get interviewed on other talk shows, which is a shame um, because like I have a lot of questions for him now. <laughs> now, what other talk show hosts are you? You want Meredith Vieira making the rounds? Or you want Jay Leno up there? Ew, no, I want him to just go away. What was wrong? Wait, what's so bad about Jay Leno? Like, I'm not, I'm not going to bat form or anything. <laughs> I just want to know why, like, what I hate. Um, well, for one thing, he asked everybody to do his comic work for him, having people send in funny newspaper stories or, mm. uh, mm. or uh, typos for him, like, how hard is it to be like, hey, everyone, look at this funny thing that someone <laughs> sent in? Mm, that's a valid point. I don't know. I just never found him funny. It was always like, let's watch David Letterman. That guy's actually funny. Uh, yeah, I like David Letterman, mostly because he could kind of make fun of himself. Yeah. I remember during a heat wave, uh, they were like, oh, yeah, it's been really hot here in New York. And uh, they had like footage of, like on the street and someone uh, takes off their glasses and like a guy in a doctor's like uniform like, holds up a micro, uh, magnifying glass and, like, a laser from, like, the sun, like, goes through the magnifying glass into the eyes and it's, like, it pans, like, a sign that says, like, LASIK for cheap or something. <laughs> and uh, it got, like, a tepid laugh and Dave Lerman was like, that's comedy with a capital K right there, folks. <laughs> also, you know, gave Larry Bud Melman a career. Oh, we're all grateful for that. We kept Paul Schaefer... In the public light. Yeah. You know, he co wrote It's Raining Men. It's Raining Men! Did he really? Yeah. Wow. I, he wrote the music, I, I should say, not the, the lyrics. Not gay, by the way. Yeah, which, uh, wow. Big shocker there. <laughs> that could have fooled me. Could not have called that one. Dovarama, but it doesn't quite flow off the tongue. Almodovar again and again. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, Almodovar and on and on and on. <laughs> Shit. Yeah, there's not really anything there, is there? It sounds close. Like <laughs> there's so many syllables in his last name that you'd think you'd be able to make a pun out of it, but no, it's just not there. No. Anyway, we did two movies by him today. Depending on which newscast you watch, uh, it's Pedro Almodovar, Pedro Almodovar, or Pedro Almodovar. <laughs> Almodovar. Somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, we did... Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. And Bad Education. Uh, sort of two, not extremes, but definitely different ends of the spectrum. Yep. He's got kookier comedies, and he's got darker dramas, mm -hmm. but, you know, he's probably epitomize his, his screwball comedy and his noirish sensibilities in the best. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, both, and it's interesting, one is super popular, and one is not as beloved as I would think it would be. Which one's which? Uh, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown is a huge success. Everyone loves it. Everyone knows it as an Almodovar film, I feel like. And I think bad education kind of gets glossed over a lot. People jump from talk to her to Volver a lot. Yeah, Volver, I think, was his big... Volver. 
like his big break in at least the English-speaking communities. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I certainly didn't know who he was before that. Oh. <laughs> I remember seeing the trailer for for Volvere, and I mean, like, I have no idea what this movie's about. Mm-hmm. It's just like one scene they're like burying a body, and the next scene they're clapping. Before we jump into the movies, mm-hmm. we should uh, maybe mention a few things about the man himself. Sure. Been making movies since uh, the early '80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you ever seen any of his really early works? The earliest one I've ever seen was "What Have I Done to Deserve This," which is like '84, like okay. third or fourth movie, somewhere okay. in there. It's bizarre. Sure. It's real weird. There's a telekinetic child. Oh, okay. Um, like elements of like kind of like Italian horror. Okay. And uh, really bizarre movie. Really yeah. Strange. But uh, totally. I'm the Dovarian. Sure. Um, has all the elements that you have. Has um, Carmen Mora in it, who is apparently the Catherine Hepburn of Spain. She's won like three or four Goya Awards, which is the equivalent of the Academy Award. Okay. But yeah, I, I went through the list. I've seen nine out of the 20 movies he's made. So okay. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the earliest of his that I've seen was Dark Habits. Okay. Which was about a showgirl on the run from the mob who takes refuge in a monastery that's inhabited by heroin-shooting lesbian nuns. Oh, uh-huh. Which you think would be amazing. <laughs> but was actually kind of dull. Oh, like, I got bad. real bored real quick with that one. He writes all his scripts, too, pretty much. I think there's only, like, one or two that are... Well, one's an adapted movie. I can't remember. I want to say it's... Uh... Live Flesh. Oh, yeah, I've seen that one. That one, I think, is uh, adapted from a story, but I think the rest are all original stories that he's written. I also want to mention that he is maybe the most uh, decorated of the directors that we've done so far, in that he has two honorary doctorates from Harvard and Oxford. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so, like... He's, you know, he's defining the language of cinema. I would like to say, especially w- while rewatching Bad Education today, I feel like he is just as stylish as other stylish directors like a Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like he gets talked about in the same circles of, you know, film fans who covet that type of style. Like Quentin Tarantino gushes over. Brian De Palma and his stylishness. Same with uh, Noah Baumbach. Uh-huh. Feels that De Palma is super stylish and, you know, just worships it. Mm-hmm. But I feel that Almodovar is just as stylish. Oh, yeah. And yet I don't hear, like, praise from, like, that community about his level of style either. Right. Also, just, I'm not sure who his production designer is, who he's mm-hmm. worked with all the time, but, like, the production design on every movie is lush, mm-hmm. colorful, of the time. Sure. And eye candy. Mm-hmm. Like, really great to look at. You know? Yeah. While watching Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, I was I was thinking, I was like, what would this movie be like if you took out any scene that had red in it? <laughs> like, not... It's not even that he uses different shades of red. Like, if you just narrowed it down to, you know, fire engine red. <laughs> like transition red for Tears oh, of Laughter? Yeah. Uh, just what scenes could you even use? Yeah. You'd be cut down to like three or four scenes because 
the main character in that, like, her fingernails are painted red. Mm-hmm. So really, like, any scene with her in it, you couldn't use. Yeah, gazpacho is red. Yeah, gazpacho is red. And watching it, like, because I noticed it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, there's a scene in the beginning where you're seeing, like, some of the voiceover stuff. Sure. And it's the, the dapper older man that, you know, everyone's in love with. <laughs> For some reason. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't quite get it, but okay. Yvonne. <laughs> uh... They're showing... Well, he's an actor, I guess, because he's actually in, like, a commercial. Right. Uh, and she is, too. Pepa is our, yeah, our main character. Is yeah. Also she does... Yeah, she... And she also does voiceover work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, on Little Bar Likes, that's that stuff, like, behind-the-scenes, real movie-making yeah. type stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's a black-and-white commercial. So I'm like, okay, this doesn't have any red in it. Yeah. So you can show this scene. <laughs> and then, like, really... There's at least a hint of bright red until the very, like, nearing the very end when you have the, uh, I don't remember the character's name, but the older woman wearing pink, the crazy one with the gun. Yeah, I I think it's Louisa. I didn't write her name down, though. When she gets, like, when she takes the motorcyclist hostage Mm -hmm. and they're driving through the city, I'm like... There's a couple shots where there's no red, especially <laughs> when they do like the Wicked Witch of the West scene, uh-huh. with, like her hair blowing in the wind. I was like, oh, there's no red here. <laughs> She's got fucking Tammy Faye Baker that eyes. That is the best. Oh man. So, I mean, we may as well jump around a little bit, but um, the yeah, that the the chase scene in this movie <laughs> in, the, in the last like half half an hour plus. Uh, crazy lady moving through the airport where it's just like her head moving mm-hmm. along the like moving walkway stuff. It's just like, mwah, mm-hmm. I love it. It's so beautiful and stylistic and hilarious. When people, when you when you hear the title Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, you think that they're almost there and that they don't quite go over. I feel like the, it's, it's like a jump rope for some of these women. Because <laughs> our main character... Kind of has a breakdown right at the beginning. Yeah. Like, she's debating on whether or not to, to commit suicide. Like, she pops all the, the valiums or barbiturates. Mm-hmm. And then at the last moment decides not to take them all at once. But then she sets her bed on fire. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to kill myself, but I am going to set my bed on fire. And I'm like, I feel like this part, because she watches it burn for a little while. Yeah, it, it gets pretty big. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not like she lights something on fire and throws it on the bed. Like, the mattress is on fire. <laughs> uh, and I'm watching, I'm like, I'm going to put this in nervous breakdown category. <laughs> this is like Britney 2007. <laughs> Just no one's there to witness it and take pictures. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Yeah, it is funny. It's funny because Peppa, throughout the whole movie, is pulling it together. Like, it's just a constant, all right, I've had a setback, I'm going to put on a new outfit, and we're going to keep going forward. Because she doesn't sleep for 48 hours. Right. Which, despite taking a barbiturate. Yeah. <laughs> Poor thing. God. Um, which I think would just add to the nervous breakdown. Oh, totally, yeah. But uh, it's fun because, you know, she's an actress, so we see her pulling it together mm-hmm. constantly. Um, and I think there's two things that she does a lot that I was noticing. It was either, like, let's have some coffee or, like, let's, let's have something to drink. Candela, sírveles un poco de café. Mm-hmm. Or, like, she goes and changes an outfit. Sometimes both. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, this is the, these are the two things that are keeping me together right now. Or, like, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know exactly what that says about her. It's, like, 
Um, I think he's kind of making a comment on her character there. So last week we were talking about, or I, I mentioned during Miller's Crossing, how mm-hmm. the Coens really like distinctive voices. Mm-hmm. And I feel that Almodovar really likes distinctive faces. Oh my god. Are you talking about um, Antonio Medeiros' fiancé? Yes. Carlos. Sí, mi amor. Esto no me gusta. She would be difficult to not pick out in, like, uh, a lineup, right? Like, if, it, it would be if the lineup was all Picasso paintings. <laughs> it's her in a bunch of Picasso paintings. <laughs> yeah. Like, fuck, I don't know. It, I, I, like, I don't want to, like, disparage a woman's looks, but she does have a very unique face. That's exactly the words I used. Has a very unique face right there. <laughs> it, like, her eyes seem very high, and she has very One is a little notes, lazy. And, like, she's got it. And, like, the bangs just seem to accentuate how high the eyes are. Yeah, she has a very small forehead. Yeah. She has a very in- unique face. Yeah. And so, the, you know, I don't want to badmouth it, but it, it it's not a face you forget easily. Yeah, that's one that, like, on Law & Order, if they walk into say, a bar or, you know, a department store, and it was like, was somebody looking like this shopping here? You'd be like, oh, yep, yeah, yep. I remember that face. Yep. <laughs> it's a real difficult one to not remember. <laughs> and I like her sort of character arc, because she comes in, she's sort of the bitch. Yeah. You know, she's bossing around, she's snooty, and uh, but then she has some of the gazpacho with all the barbiturates in it, and mm. she passes out quickly, and she has her little... Sexy dream time. Yeah. While the rest of the movie's happening. No, que se está divirtiendo. No la había visto nunca, nunca así. Pues mejor la despertamos porque se lo está pasando muy bien. No ve la cara que tiene. Se lo está pasando, Pipe. But when she comes out of it, she's actually like in a good mood. She's like, I slept like a log. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then she's totally nice. Yeah. The there. Uh, I guess she just needed a little D. <laughs> I like that everybody who drinks the gazpacho in this movie is like, this is so good. Like, Peppa makes good gazpacho. Well, when she was talking about making I was like, I kind of want some. Tomate, pepino, pimiento, cebolla, una puntita de ajo, aceite, sal, vinagre, pan duro, y agua. I, I make a meme with gazpacho. I'm not oh, really? brag, but okay. um, uh, I, I was thinking today... Stale bread and everything? I don't do the stale bread. That was okay. the one ingredient that I thought, like, what? Really? I mean, I guess I could see it if you're just blending it all up. It just kind of thickens it up. Well, uh, yeah. I, and, well, I think, uh, you know, it's, just, it's like French toast. Like, mm. I think people just needed a reason to, like, use up stale bread yeah, back when it. food wasn't super plentiful. Yeah. Have you ever made gazpacho? No, I've never made it. Oh, it's so easy. I mean, I like the taste of it. I've had it before, but... Mm-hmm. This has been Gazpacho Cast. <laughs> For more on gazpacho, turn to, <laughs> tune in to Ryan's other podcast. Gazpacho for all. ¿Qué tiene este gazpacho? Tomate, pepino, pimiento, cebolla, vinagre, pan duro, aceite, sal, puntita de ajo. It's tomato soup served ice cold. To jump back to the beginning, during the breakdown, we'll say, you know, she watches the mattress burn for a while. Like mm-hmm. she, she's sort of enjoying the blaze there for a little bit, 
and I was trying to think if there was a symbolism to lighting the mattress on fire because she was oh. upset about the, you know, her philandering boyfriend person. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yvonne. Because uh, he was married, and she knew that he was married. Oh, yeah. Uh, it kind of reminded me of Closer, except it wasn't as infuriating to me, where it's like, you know, for a bunch of cheaters, these people get awfully sensitive when they're cheated on. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, you're the other woman here. Like, I don't really think you should be getting this upset about, like, him, I guess. Well, he wasn't well, seeing his wife. He was seeing another woman. Right. Like, yet another woman. But also, she's pregnant. So it's like, yeah. I think she's got that going for her, where it's, that's sort of a motivating... Uh, Factor in her nervous breakdown of like, I need to tell you this yeah. big news. Uh, throughout the whole movie, she's trying to get in contact with him just so she can tell him that, even though they're breaking up. And she kind of goes back and forth because it seems like there's a point where she's avoiding him. Like in the middle, she's like, "Well, fuck that guy. I'm not gonna. Yeah. If he doesn't care, then I'm not gonna make a big deal out of it." And then she kind of goes back. She's like, "I'm pregnant." She like rips the phone out and then it's like. Uh, can you fix the phone, Antonio Banderas? Because he might call me. <laughs> I like that running gag because she keeps throwing stuff at the window, but it's just at that one pane. Yeah. So it's like the phone breaks that window pane, but then she throws other stuff and it goes through the already broken pane. The record like, oh, gonna... and the answering machine. Yeah. Both go through that. I was like, oh, she's got good aim. <laughs> you know, she's just really used to throwing things in that direction. <laughs> I forgot about her throwing the record out the window and it hitting the lawyer <laughs> yeah. woman. Any episode of The Simpsons when Homer gets kicked out of the out of Moe's? Uh-huh. I'm taking your caricature down from Mount Lushmore and I'm pulling your favorite song out of the jukebox. <gasps> it's raining, man! Hey, co-written by Paul Schaefer. <laughs> kind of along those lines, we tried to do a double feature campathon on episode 10 mm-hmm. that failed miserably. May we never speak of it again. Um, but somebody <laughs> who's Super good at camp is Amadovar. Like, yeah. this movie has campy elements like that, and it works. So one of the arguments, and this is something that you hear a lot uh, in defense of showgirls, mm-hmm. is that can you create camp by design? A lot of people feel that you, in order to make camp, you have to like be trying to make something that isn't camp, mm, and it becomes it. It becomes by it. Virtue. Did you see... Uh, I'm so excited. I did. I thought about that a lot, actually, today. And, like, that movie is probably his campiest. Mm-hmm. And that's totally by design. He can do it, and he does it really well. Yeah, he he just seems to have an understanding of the sensibilities around camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the voiceover work, I was trying... I think I identified the movie that they were doing the voiceover for. Okay. Because it had Joan Crawford in it. Right. And I think it was a movie called Autumn Leaves. Oh, okay. Which is a movie... It's sort of role reversal about a young man played by Cliff Robertson who falls for Joan Crawford, who's an older woman. Ooh. And uh, I kind of felt like this was the, the reverse of that because you had the, the young woman sure. who was in love with, with Yvonne, who's an uh, older Latin man. Mm-hmm. I like that you brought up the uh, voiceover stuff because mm-hmm. there's a scene, we're talking about style mm-hmm. as a director. 
There's the shot of when Peppa's doing her work on it, mm-hmm. and it's that overhead shot following the line of the film strip. Okay. It's like brightly lit. We're looking down on it as it slowly moves forward. Toma, bebe. No tengo sé. Con esto conseguirás dormir. Ya lo intenté. Y no me sirvió de nada. ¿A cuántos hombres has tenido que olvidar? A tantos como mujeres recuerdas tú. No me he movido. Dime algo agradable. Sí. ¿Qué quieres que te diga? It's just gorgeous. Yeah. It's really great. And then I loved when she's pacing later. Okay. And we're just following her shoes. Oh, yeah. Right. I have a note about that. That's uh, so great. Yeah, just her pacing in high heels and like pivoting yeah. back and forth. Yeah. yeah. It's a cool shot and it tells us about her. It, like she's she's struggling with something. Yeah, it gives off a feeling of nervousness, mm-hmm. you know, or, or even like you could say like a ticking time bomb sort of scenario yeah. with the clack of the heels. Right. And it's specifically uh, feminine mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. issue because she's in heels. You yeah. Know? So it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it, but that worked really well for me. And I love the scene. There's a part where she's coming back to check her answering machine and she looks down at the cassette and we're filming up through the cassette as it's spinning. Yeah. That's so cool. It's like, and it's on there for like five seconds. It's not even a huge cut, but one of the scenes I really liked was after she had put out her mattress and there was a scene of her packing the suitcase up, but it was all Yvonne's stuff that mm-hmm. she, you know, she was going to give back to him or throw away or whatever her mood was. guy <laughs> goes all over do. with that. Uh, but it, it starts in in the suitcase and trying to pack it up and it backs up like more and more like slowly mm-hmm. but then it reveals uh, you can see the mattress and her bedroom in the background and yeah. it's like, just a smoke filled room yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a nice little reveal because like our eyes are fixated on the suitcase and we don't see like the smoke and the mattress till like we're almost all the way like panned out. That's interesting that you're you're talking about this because there's another scene, the gazpacho scene, when they're all in the living room drinking gazpacho with the cops and everything. Yeah, and yeah. there's a the only you see everyone starting to fall asleep and getting drugged and like laying down, and you just see like uh, Peppa and Crazy Mom. Luisa, I'm guessing, holding full glasses of gazpacho. And oh, yeah. Like, it's just a pullout, and you see that they're the only two who are awake, and they're the only two holding full glasses. Yeah. It's nice. Entonces, ¿qué hacen aquí que no están en el aeropuerto? En el aeropuerto hay más policías que pasajeros. No se preocupe por eso. No sé qué me pasa. Pero como no confiese, me lo llevo. Jefe, a este gazpacho le han echado algo. ¿Qué tiene este gazpacho? It's a good visual cue that they're they know what's going on, sort of, or yeah. that you know they're not going to pass out. Like yeah, them, at least, or that they know what the score is. You know, she's not drinking it. Yard, neither of them are drinking it. So, you know, one of them knows that there's barbiturates in the gazpacho, and the other one just mm. might have you know her attention elsewhere and isn't interested in the gazpacho. Yeah, the gazpacho is almost like Chekhov's gun a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's you know. We're introduced to the idea that, like, if you drink it, you know, you'll pass out, and suddenly it's a weapon in the movie. Can we please stop saying Chekhov's gun and start saying Almodovar's gazpacho? (laughs) 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 And it rolls off the tongue. Man, 
If someone doesn't start a band with that name. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it to catch on. Hashtag Almodovar So, if in town we had a cab driver, like the one in this movie, how often would you take a cab? Mambo Taxi is awesome. God, he's got magazines for rent. Uh, Tissues. Yeah, yeah, because she's crying at one point. Yeah, she just tissues. grabs one. Um, he takes requests for items that you need because yeah. in the, like, the third time she runs into him, he has eye drops. Yeah. He's prepared for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you got eye drops. Yeah. <laughs> How sweet. I mean, not only was his cab like leopard print. Uh, I mean, the interior, the outside looked normal, but the inside was like leopard print. And, yeah, yeah. Like, his hair was bleached blonde and... It was just he seemed all right. Yeah, I like I like Mambo Cab. <laughs> Pedro Almodovar has been questioned as like, what do you think one of the secrets to success of your films? Mm-hmm. And he's quoted as saying that like, I think a lot of it is owed to the fact that they're entertaining. And watching this movie specifically, that is partially what makes this movie great. Is that like you can have this madcap plot mm-hmm. that gets twisty and strange and sometimes difficult to follow a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but it doesn't matter because it's so entertaining. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. And in the, the penthouse or the loft or the, the suite or whatever her apartment is referred to as, there's an artifice to it. Like the background yeah. and the skyline looks like it's almost like a play. Yeah. And I was kind of thinking, you know, a lot of voiceover work, like you can tell when something's dubbed. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, and there's, sort of, there's an artifice to that. And I was wondering if that the, those two things were sort of connected at all but i was also kind of thinking that i think especially the way that almodovar seems to love his set designs like mm-hmm. every there's so much red and you know there's not really a rhyme or reason to what's red yeah. it's just like as much red as possible really <laughs> yeah or just colors i just noticed like there's a there's a scene where like someone has like one of those old like credit card logs when you had to like oh. take out a machine like chunk it right yeah yeah and the carbon copies and someone was, like, looking through one of those, and the print on that was red. Yeah. I was like, oh, man, someone was in props and saw that and was like, this is what we're using for this shot. The, the tickets to Stockholm, I think, is what that was. Oh, was it? Okay, mm-hmm. okay. because yeah, you used to get, t- like, paper tickets in the mail with, like, a carbon copy. Oh, okay. Yeah. I barely remember that as a kid. But yeah, I was just thinking, I think he just really likes creation and, like, creating. Mm-hmm. Like, and he's chosen movies because that lets him be sort of creative on all fronts yeah but i mean in almost all his movies like it revolves around people who are like in show business like creative people Mm -hmm. in one way or another actors actresses you know stuff like that people working in a creative field i think that owes a lot to uh the time period when he started making stuff because i was researching today he came into his own or he was a big part of a renaissance that was happening after dictator Franco died. Okay. And so he kind of helped usher in this like era of creation and uh, freedom and new things that were along those lines that were suppressed for a long period of time. Okay. And so it's just like this blossoming and, and growth in creative fields that came out in that time. Okay. So... Um, yeah, I totally can see him just like latching onto that and being like, let's keep representing this. Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, I think really kind of marks 
the beginning of his mature period, we'll say. Even, even as other earlier movies, even if they're not bad or even if they are entertaining, this one kind of, I feel, is him like finally finding his voice. Mm-hmm. You know, at this point, he's uh, still chiseling at stone, mm-hmm. whereas, say, in Bad Education, he's molding with clay. Sure. But this is, like I feel, when he found his voice. Agreed. And I forgot... So I saw this a long time ago in the theater. I want to oh. say it was the Harvard exit when they were doing the, like, Alma Devora fun of their own. get back to that. Uh, uh, but um, I don't remember this movie looking as good as it did. I remember it feeling really 80s. Mm-hmm. And watching it for this podcast, feeling like this feels a little more timeless than, than I gave it mm. credit for the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's of its time, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily read '80s in any other way than, like, say, fashion or the the technology. Like, you know, yeah. Obviously, no one's gonna throw their answering machine out of window <laughs> nowadays. Or... Yeah, but other than that, it really is. Uh, like the themes of it don't read that way. No, the, the way characters act or their motivations don't feel dated. Um, I, mean, I don't know. He, I mean, he does sort of operate, especially in this movie, on just sort of timeless themes. Like, you know, is there ever going to be a time in, you know, humanity when you don't get upset when you're betrayed? Yeah. Is there ever a time where you're going to be upset that the hookup you just had turns out to be a terrorist? <laughs> I don't think so. A Shiite terrorist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, the terrorists can change as time goes on, but, you know, that's a real boner killer to find out that that dude you had, you've been sleeping with is a terrorist. Yeah. Speaking of production design, those coffee percolator earrings that she was wearing. (laughs) Wow. That's not the choice I would make if I was trying to lay low, personally. (laughs) Uh you know, and it really is, it's women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And yeah. Tony Banderas' character doesn't seem that perturbed by anything. Oh, he's so tertiary. <laughs> I guess he gives Pippa some motivation in that, like, she's pregnant with his brother. Oh, yeah. So, that's true. like, that gives her motivation to... Yeah, he's the son of Yvonne. Yvonne, yeah, and Louisa. So, that gives Pippa motivation to be like, oh, well, maybe I should create this relationship. I love the way... That Amaldivar is Louisa is at the mother. Let's go with that. I don't okay. know if it is or not. <laughs> but like she comes in with her Jackie O pink. Oh, I know what you're and her say. Tammy Faye Baker eyes, and like you, she just reads crazy. She doesn't even have to do anything. I thought you were gonna say that like Candela starts crying because she thinks that it's the cops coming after her. And they're oh, like, they're like, "What's wrong?" And she's like, "It's the dress. It's just so <laughs> awful." ¿Qué pasa? Nada. Comentábamos el modelo de la señora. Es horroroso, horroroso. Bueno, Candela, solo es un traje, ¿eh? Es horroroso. No, pero ya es libre de ponerse el traje que quiera. Candela, por favor, deja de comportarte como una niña frente a los señores policías. I know it's awful. Pull yourself together. <laughs> I mean, it's just straight up like Mary Kay, like home delivery. Yeah, and earlier when she's wearing that weird like leopard print lampshade on her head oh, and yeah. the leopard print jacket. So uh, yeah, when she pulls out the gun, I was like, you know what? She would carry a gun. <laughs> she she seems like that kind of crazy. And it's in like 
a super 80s gift bag that she's carrying around. Uh, and there's two guns in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she's double-fisting it for a while. <laughs> she's just got two guns in this gift bag that was designed by, I don't know, uh, a more corporate Keith Haring, basically. But yeah, and then, yeah, so she she's going to the airport. She's going to shoot Yvonne. She kidnaps or holds at gunpoint that motorcycle driver, and, like, they're going to the airport, and just the music that's playing, and then there's, so like, just good. the close-up of, like, her head, like, and her hair, like, in the wind, and it's just Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. Like, that's... I can't think of anything else that he was doing. Like, the music isn't specifically that, but, like, the way it's, like, the profile shot with her hair in the wind, and, like, you know, not specifically Wizard of Oz music, but it's playing music... Yeah. That could have been in Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. And there's something about just like, I think maybe he's making a comment on like, when you have. When society views, uh, uh, you know, passionate women, we label them as witches. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. <laughs> or crazy. It's like all in your head, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so it's just okay. an image of her head. Um, yeah, it's so good. I remember the first time seeing this, just. Losing my mind at that point, just thinking, like, this is so good, you know? It really, like, the screwball levels get, like, really amped up in this movie. Yeah. Like, it's a little screwball to begin with, but it really goes off the charts near the end. Yeah. One of the most fun Almodovar movies. Yeah. Just, like, front to back. It's it's a lot of fun. It's super entertaining. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, and stylish. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um... Women forward. Do you want to uh, shift gears here and start talking about um, Catholic priests who abuse children? Uh, yes, but then after that, can we talk about bad education? Huh. Sure, I feel like that'd be in. Yeah, that sounds great. Actually, before we get started, I'm going to grab the other bottle so that I don't have to grab it. Oh, yeah, I, gotta, I should actually go to the bathroom. We're taking a break, folks. <laughs> Did we mention that he's gay yet? I don't think we have. If you didn't know beforehand, you'd know by watching his movies. Indeed. He's a homosexual through and through. And And a proud one. Yeah. And in his movies, there's all sorts of gender fluidity going through. Like, there's always people, you know, non-binary characters in, you know, the majority of his movies. Yeah. Not struggling with their issues either. Everyone's just fine with either being gay or being trans or whatever. Yeah. I mean, they're all liberated in that way. Still needing to get through the means of it. But yeah, at least like no personal struggle. Yeah. Sort of like in Tipping the Velvet where it's like, there's no questioning of that. There's no internal struggle. Nobody has to come out in an Almodovar movie. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. I I didn't realize that until reading about him and his movies today thinking like, oh yeah, that is true. Maybe that that is why I've liked his movies so much is like there's a gay character and they're gay. Yeah. Boom. Who cares? (laughs) So before we we hop into our next film, just this... This is the movie that sort of popped my Almodovar cherry. I had heard of him as a director before. Uh, one of my coworkers 
was of Mexican descent. Okay. Uh, and she was a big fan of his movies, and she told me about him. And she said, you know, she was a couple years younger than me, too, and I was only 20 at this time. Okay. And she had specifically said that Bad Education was one of her favorites, and specifically because of Gail Garcia Bernal and how attractive he was. So I, I remembered his name, but I hadn't seen any of Almodovar's movies. By this time, I'd already seen Itumama Tambien. Okay. And I'd seen Motorcycle Diaries. Okay. So I'd seen Gail Garcia Bernal in other movies. Hadn't really developed any lustful feelings for him yet. Oh, okay. But you mentioned earlier that there was an Almodovar marathon uh, at, like, Landmark Cinemas. Oh, yeah. So that was going on you know, one weekend on the hill here. And I decided to go see a movie. Like, I was living at First Hill at the time. Okay. And so I walked over to the Harvard Exit Theater and Bad Education was playing. I was like, oh, well, this is the one that she liked the best. Check it out. You know, when you're 20, you can't drink yet. You have all this free time. Yeah, yeah. So I used to just see, like, I'd walk around to theaters and see what, what was playing. And if it's something struck my fancy, I'd just go in without really sure. knowing anything about it. So... I was like, Bad Education, starts in 20 minutes. What a movie to walk into. <laughs> yeah, so I go in, and I don't know anything about it other than Gail Garcia Bernal's in it. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a, like, you're, I was 20. It's sort of a big deal. Totally. Like, this is a mind-blowing movie in yeah. a lot of ways, especially for gay men. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that he was gay, that Almodovar was gay, or that he made movies with gay characters in them. Mm-hmm. This also kind of shows, like, a darker side of what, like, repression and abuse that gay people deal with can produce. Yeah. And, I'm, you know, I was watching this this morning. There's not really a protagonist in this movie. There's no good guy. We have Enrique, the director. Yeah. But even he exploits Aniel... Like, for sexual gain. Right. Aniel is obviously being deceptive. You can't say Ignacio's a good guy. No. Because um, he's definitely into, well, junkie, blackmailer. Priest, certainly not. There's there's just no real protagonist, like or no hero, I guess. Not even, like, in an anti-hero sense. Right. It's all... Everybody's kind of morally free in this movie. Sure. No one's really bound by what is good or bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Even the, like, religious people, because they do, they commit murder and, like, <laughs> child abuse, so they don't really seem bound by that. I mean, that was definitely one thing that I was thinking about with this, is that the priest uses God to inspire fear in the children. Right. But he himself does not feel that fear. Right. Uh, he believes God is on his side no matter what. So... There's sort of different levels of storytelling here. There's what's happening in the now. Mm -hmm. Then we have a story written by Ignacio uh, that's part autobiographical, part fiction. Mm -hmm. And so as Enrique's reading the story, we're in the fiction world. And then we're seeing the fiction We're world. seeing the yeah. fiction world. And then in that fiction world, there's a confrontation by two characters that goes back into a real flashback, essentially. Right. The autobiographical part of the story. So, yeah, we have reality, fiction, and inside that fiction story is a flashback to reality. Right. But and, it could also be seen as 
fiction because it, it, it could we don't know it's through someone's lens yes yeah, in that flashback we don't know if we're seeing the movie version or if we're actually seeing him remembering that version right so it's really metafiction ambiguousness going on there but it, it's played that the flashback inside the fiction is supposedly based on real events sure yeah yeah, yeah. uh so even if it's not strictly autobiographical, it's supposed to be at least in that ballpark. Right. So there's different levels of like reality and storytelling going on here, mm-hmm. and which is tricky to pull off. Almodovar does it, A, by uh, shifting the aspect ratio. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, the further down you go, the more narrow the aspect ratio is. I didn't is. notice that. Oh, and cool. then when you get back to reality, it gets wider. Huh, okay. Yeah. But... I can still pinpoint exactly when my crush on Gael Garcia Bernal started. Okay. Uh, would you care to take a guess which scene in here? Um, when he starts to take his underwear off and his pubes pop out? No, not that one. Oh. Okay, go ahead. Uh, it's closer to the end when he's doing push-ups. Oh. <laughs> that would have been my second guess. jogging shorts. Do, and do, he's do, just do, sort of like shaking his booty dancing while doing push-ups. Yeah. Yeah, when I saw that in theaters, I was like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> if I ever questioned being gay, mm-hmm. I can't anymore. I didn't realize this when I picked E2, Mama Tambien, but that movie and this one both have him swimming underwater in a pool. Yeah. So I wonder if he was worried about getting typecast as looks good underwater <laughs> in a pool guy. I don't know if anyone's ever worried about that. <laughs> So there's one thing that I kind of noticed with the opening credits of these two movies. In Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, it was sort of like magazine ads. Yeah, cool collages. Yeah. With that, with that really great dramatic song about, yeah. I'm so sad. It's really great. But it, 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 it's sort of like flipping through like a fashion magazine. Sure. Because there's shots of like women in brassieres and like Lipstick. sunglasses, you know, stuff like that. And this one, it looks like pages being ripped out of a magazine. Yeah. And and I, I have to think this was intentional. With that education, with like the vertical lines and the music, the music reminded me so much of Bernard Herrmann scores from from Hitchcock oh, films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like with the vertical lines, it reminded me of the Saul Bass uh, opening credit sequence in Psycho. With, yeah. with like the vertical lines, uh, spelling out things and sure. stuff like that. And I just, I had to think that that was intentional. Like, this was very specifically, like, an homage to the opening of Psycho, which also deals with, you know, essentially a trans oh, person yeah. uh, committing violence or, or hmm. doing nefarious deeds. I didn't see that. I saw it as a reference to, like, the layers of posters on oh. the um, movie house that, okay. they, that they go and visit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, like, as you peel back layers... Like the movie is in layers, you, mm-hmm. you eventually get to the truth or like okay. to where you're getting to. So that's kind of what I read it as. Okay, but that's that's a good interpretation there too, because he's definitely he, like I said, he's he's very informed by cinema, and he's admitted that like that's where he got his education. Yeah, so. and there's there's just a couple key moments where like I'll watch it and I feel like this is a very Hitchcockian moment. And then the score is also very classic Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, specifically the Psycho one. Yeah, I and. It, it upsets me that a lot of modern movies kind of take the score for granted, mm-hmm. that it's more wallpaper, that it shouldn't be noticed. I start to understand why 
now people want the score to go unnoticed mm-hmm. because the score adds so much flavor to a movie like Absolutely. when done right. Yeah. And we've talked about going all the way back to episode two, like an opening credit sequence that really gets you prepared for the movie. Mm-hmm. I think both of these movies are super good at that. And they're both like traditional credit sequences in that it's like, it says Sony Pictures Classic or whatever releases it. And then it starts with these like music and credit sequences. It's great. It really sets the mood. It's almost like an overture to get you ready to go. It's just this wonderful opening credit sequence. It's one of those things that a lot of other directors kind of take for granted or do it by the numbers, but he really uses it as, you know, a part of the film. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the, the visual aesthetic of the opening credits is just as interesting as other parts of the movie. Yeah. And I don't know, I felt like they were of a piece, actually, these two opening credit sequences. And I don't, I can't remember if he always does them like this. But they felt like they could have been done by the same person. Yeah. You know, like the same sort of collage feel. I didn't have time to do too much research, but I definitely felt that Amodovar must use the same crew going forward. Sort of like Wes Anderson, because it's like as they age, things like sets and costumes and props seem to get tighter. Like it seems more in tune with his sensibility. And I feel like that comes from working with the same cast and crew over a long period of time. Definitely cast, and I think crew, too. I didn't research it too much either, but I think he collaborates with a lot of the same people. He started a production company with his brother in, like, the late 80s. And then this is what makes Bad Education so great, is that it's, like, it's not only meta in that it's a director and we're watching the film that this director is, is making. You can blow it up one more level and put... Pedro Almodovar and there as as the director because it's mm-hmm. like he's making this movie based on personal like some personal accounts like he said it took him like 10 years to write this script because it was a very personal movie for oh, him oh really oh so it's like you can yeah you can take it out one more one more time and see him as this person making this movie and because he owns a production company he's looking for stories to do he's a director in the early 80s like it works that on that level too. Makes me think that if uh, that he sexually exploits his actors. <laughs> Antonio, you have anything to say? Because <laughs> uh, yeah, it, you know, I, I would say that Enrique is probably the least sinful of our main players, but okay. even he, knowing full well that. Aniel is not what he says he is. Takes advantage of him. Yeah, and, you know... But he admits it for a reason. He's like, I want to see how far you would go as an actor. Yeah. And it's like, that was the audition, basically. It's like, if I, if you let me fuck it, you it, in the ass, I'll give you this part. It <laughs> says... Aniel's like, let me audition, and it cuts to him being fucked. Yeah. <sighs> Casting couch time. And then he says, like, the audition process went on for months. Yeah, he's like, I penetrated him several times. Yeah. And he let me do it. Because, like, in, physically. Yeah. In the end, he turns out, Angel turns out to be married to a woman. Like, it says in, in the sort of epilogue, like, he ends up marrying oh, somebody. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of like, you have to wonder how 
how much of that was he sexually into and how much of, of it was him actually just acting to get the part. Another thing about Amador movies is it's not just like gender fluidity, but there is sort of like a spectrum of sexuality too. Sure. Because the priest also marries a woman and mm-hmm. then has a kid as well. Yeah. And Aniel goes on and marries a woman, even though, you know, we're introduced to him, you know, he's playing the part of a gay man, mm-hmm. but then he doesn't have to play the part of a gay man for the priest, as we find out later, Yeah, but is still like his little boy toy either for financial gain or for just the presence or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. he was, you know, hetero flexible at the very least, but you know, it sort of seems that a lot of these people play straight just because, you know, it's expected or it leads to an easier lifestyle, but it's not really a big thing. Amorva doesn't say like, Oh, well, you know, this person who molested young boys goes and marries a woman. It's not like a big deal. It's not like, and suddenly he did this. It was like, Oh yeah, that just sort of plays out to like the natural yeah. flow of things. It's refreshing to not really have a morality to his movies. Mm-hmm. There's no definitive right and wrong, mm-hmm. like say religion dictates. Yeah. You yeah. know, like these people, they're all kind of free of that. They can they can do whatever they want. And I think there's even that line of it where it's like once he lost his faith, he was like, I was free, I could do anything. Yeah, you without know, fear he was Pienso que acabo de perder la fe en este momento. Ya no tener fe, ya no creo en Dios ni en el infierno. Si no creo en el infierno, ya no tengo miedo. Y sin miedo, soy capaz de cualquier cosa. I like characters that can do that and like we're free to kind of judge them however we want. The film never judges them. The yeah. film never like dictates to the audience like this is bad, this is good. Yeah. It's just sort of like presents these characters acting and then you're free to judge them however you want to. I guess all. I, I was going to say that I guess that does allow like the audience to project their own sense of morality and values and we're not put, we're not confining them to the film sense of morality. Right. Or societies even. I feel like this film kind of transcends what society expects of people Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. So we talked about the use of red and women on the verge, and there's there's no shortage of red here. I don't want to say that. But he does seem to use it more conservatively here because there are actual stretches of the film that don't use red. Uh, But still, it's a very colorful film. um, Oh, uh, hugely colorful uh, but it's it's red a lot of like sort of golden brown tones the greens and purples playing against that yeah a lot and the lighting i remember god the lighting i don't know if it was the hd version i watched today or what but the lighting in this movie is so good somehow they got everybody's eyes to sparkle like <laughs> i don't know what I, I think it was the version i watched because i was just like caught up in how good the shadow slash light interplay was. Okay. It's just really amazing. In the origin story, because with Women on the Verge, I was like, there's like three scenes in this whole movie that don't have fire engine red in them. And here, the red is a little bit more nuanced. Like, it's not always just the hard traditional red that we're thinking of. Okay. Sometimes it's different types of red throughout. But in the origin story, when we go back to the, uh, them as children, mm-hmm. there's a scene of them at night and they get caught in the, the bathroom by the, the father. Right. And it's just blue and black for yeah. that whole sequence. And I felt like that was on purpose, that, you know, 
this one scene is devoid of any other colors other than just like blue purplish and yeah. black in that scene it he it the uh young boy ignacio mm-hmm. you know uh the father is starting to expel enrique and he says i'll do whatever you ask as long as you don't expel enrique mm-hmm. which is a terrible position to put child in. Yeah, these are like 10 year olds. And then he ends up expelling Enrique anyway. Yeah. Uh, and he starts talking about how like his the father's hypocrisy like right then and there like he, he was going to get his like revenge one day. Yeah. And I just remember like he's talking about like how infuriating that hypocrisy was and it cuts to them the children working out like yeah in, uh, like in, in the schoolyard while like a father's like sitting down with a cane and being like one, two, you know, right. while they're doing push-ups. And I was like, this fat tub of lard sitting on his ass, like, <laughs> telling all these kids. I was like, I don't know, it, that looked like like a uh, another, like, display of hypocrisy. Like, totally. This father's, like, literally, not even, like, walking around. Like, I understand, like, no, you're not as athletic as, you know, 10-year-old boys, but the fact that you're sitting down just, like, hitting a cane, being like, down, yeah, up. Down, yeah. like okay, D- different type of hypocrisy, but it's <laughs> illustrating the point. And it's beautifully shot. Like I just have to say, I I, I remarked on that scene as well, just how cool it looks. Yeah, because it's like a up, really high up mm-hmm. scene, and you see them all moving in unison, and then they all stand up, and then it's like a. I don't know, it's just really cool. Cause that, and that's the scene where they explain that Enrique was being expelled, and they're doing, like, sort of, like... Trunk twists with their heads on their Yeah, their hands on their, their heads head. while, they're, while they're twisting their torsos, and Enrique is being led away, you know, presumably with his parents, and Ignacio stops, and, like, the whole crowd is doing these twists, right. but he's stationary looking one direction, so it kind of just gives that contrast that he's... His mind is elsewhere... And just while we're on this scene, that really drove home the point to me that these were kids. Because mm. they're holding their arms up and there's no armpit hair. These are children. Yeah. You know? I was also thinking, if you were the child actor in this, you probably wouldn't be allowed to see this movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, they probably had to wait like eight years before they were allowed to watch this. Yeah. There's a couple of really stylish things that go on in this origin story. A, when, when uh, Ignacio's confronted in the the... Uh, latrines there mm-hmm. the way that scene ends before it cuts to like them in the the playground uh the father like walks across camera and his back like uh uh obscures the whole view mm-hmm. so it's, it oh, goes right. all black and then it's a white dot that like comes out of that right uh and then also in the origin story we have when the kid uh is first accosted by the father and he runs but falls and his head starts bleeding right. And then it splits Splits. him in two. And, I mean, it it talks about how he he felt split in two, but really, I feel the point of what that was trying to do was, like, it's now a before and after thing for him. Like, there was a before the trauma and an after the trauma, and his life is now in these two parts. And uh, what's cool about that expulsion scene is that there's a shot of young Ignacio 
and then it fades to present day Gal Garcia Bernal because yeah. we think that's who was playing him. Right. And then we also get a nice cool fade from Enrique into the director who it actually was yeah. in that time. Um, and it ties it all together because at that point you're sort of like floating between like what, who are these characters exactly? Like is he just reading a script? Is this really us? And like you kind of, that moment kind of crystallizes that yeah, this is you know, Enrique remembers it this way. Yeah. So it's like, this script is from Ignacio, even though he feels like it could not be Ignacio. Well, because there's that, that little, that, that middle fiction part where uh, Aniel's character uh, is the drag performer, which, by the way, is the greatest lip-sync sequence Zahara. you will ever see. So good. I, yeah, Zahara is a great lip-sync. <laughs> yeah. Siempre. Que te pregunto, que cuando, como y donde, tú siempre me respondes, quizás, quizás, quizás. I don't know how much practice or how much, like, I don't, I don't know how much work it would have had to take. But that is a perfect lip sync. So good. Um, also, uh, the dress, that nudie dress that he's wearing. Yeah. Jean-Paul Gaultier. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, he designed that. So. When when it is revealed that when we're watching this back story, that it is actually like a fiction. Yeah. Um, he ties it all together with that gesture, that hand gesture that Zahara does, where she puts her hand up by her forehead kind of thing. Okay. And then later, when... Angel is studying the drag queens. We see him do that gesture. Oh. So, like, it ties it all together that, like, that is a fiction. It's sort of fiction. Like, we get the idea that it's still kind of actually based on the real Ignacio. Right, we don't really know exactly that we're watching a movie quite yet. Yeah. But it, it cues you in to the fact that, like, oh, what I saw earlier was him studying to do that part. Yeah. I mean... The movie's not very long. It's like 100 minutes. Yeah. But we get different stories, different versions of, of stories, and then, like, but they're seen through different character lenses. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that. the fiction part is only partially fiction. It's still based on Ignacio. It's just... Seen filter. through the director's eyes, basically. Yeah. yeah. And same with the origin story. It's like, you know, we don't know precisely how much of that, that origin story is real, but, like, that's the way that the main characters sort of remember it. Yeah, so we're seeing the story written by Ignacio, so that's filtered through Ignacio, directed by Enrique, so that's filtered through Enrique, directed by Almodovar. Yeah. So you've got, like, these several filters that it's coming through. But when I watch it now, it it the following the narrative seems crystal clear to me. Me like, too. I, I never felt like I was lost or I didn't know who these characters were. Yeah. Even though there's these different planes of reality, Almodovar juggles it masterfully. I don't, yeah, I've seen this movie several times now, and it's never felt like a confusing narrative. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. He he somehow manages to to take this crazy, convoluted, metafiction story, and it automatically makes sense. Yes. As a viewer. I remember... The in the Zahara story, like the fiction element, I was like, you know, 
most drag performers sort of look like far side cartoons. Like beehive haircuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Zahara actually kind of looks hot. Totally. And I was thinking, I was like, except, except like he doesn't have a really live physique. Like he, he's a little thick. And then when he gets back to the uh, reality storyline and he's like, oh, I want to play Zahara. And Enrique's like, oh, well, you're too well built for that. And I was like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he is. The shots of him like getting ready to get into the pool. Mm. I was just like, he is a stocky little thing. Yeah, he is really a brick of a man. Yeah, but uh, I guess uh, during the rape scene where he uh, is penetrated by the guy who passed out, the, the... unibrow. <laughs> um, which I don't think we we talk about that enough. He did rape Enrique right there. Uh. The rumor is that he actually, like, Gail Garcia Bernal actually, like, sat on a dildo. Really? Scene. See, I just imagined that Gal Garcia Bernal had practiced on a dildo mm. in a mirror or something, and then when he came into work that day, was like, I know what I'm going to do. Oh, okay. But, um, sure. Let's, let's pretend that is the real deal. <sighs> Really, we've only talked about, like, the first half of this movie. Like, all this, like, shifting reality stuff is just, like, the beginning of it, essentially. Right. Well, it all gets kind of thrown into question when um, Enrique says, like, I'd, I'd love to do your script, Ignacio, in quotations. Let's go. Let's go celebrate. Mm-hmm. In, which, in, like, quotations mean, like, let's go maybe get drunk and have yeah. sex because you look great. And uh, we used to jerk each other off in the movie theater. Um, and then, like, Enrique starts to get clued into the fact that maybe Ignacio is not who he says he is. Yeah. Um, so he goes... He doesn't remember a song. Right, a very important song to them, and he doesn't get naked in front of them. And, like, yeah. And he's like, you just don't quite seem like the Ignacio that I thought you were. And while I don't doubt that this story was written by Ignacio, I just don't know if you are him. Yeah. So he goes to go do some research and finds out that Angel is uh, Ignacio's brother. <laughs> Juan. Juan. The whole time. Yeah. And uh, is an actor who um, just really wants to get this role. Yeah. He thinks it's a real meaty role. It's a meaty role. It's totally meaty. All sorts of man parts. Just, <laughs> just slabs those, those of leading man parts. Oh, I can just taste those meaty leading man parts in my mouth. And so once he realizes that, he sort of becomes an actor in that he's like, okay... Yeah. Ignacio, I mean Andel, you're welcome to play this role, but you also have to be my fuck buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if you're really willing to play this part. And he does. He's yeah. just like on board. And then that's when we as the audience realize that this flashback or the envisioning of this script that we've been watching the whole time is actually the movie he's been directing. Yes. And it comes to a head with um, that final scene in the priest's office where they shoot it, Zahara dies, quote-unquote, in the movie, and then they look, and cut. And you see, like, the artifice pull away. Yeah. Like, all the walls start to pull away, but the real emotions of the weight of everything that... Juan has done are there. Yeah, because he, he's still crying well after yeah. the scene has ended. 
It's a, for me watching at this time that was an amazing moment. Like mm. it's always been kind of cool to realize like oh the the reveal of all of it but like as the like artifice of the story pulls away like the realness of the emotions crystallizes for mm. him. Mm-hmm. Juan's emotions in that moment are real. Oh yeah. Like he's very much upset about like what it took to get to this point for him um, and is crying. Yeah. For real. Yeah. Um, as that artifice gets torn away. It's a real moving moment for me. Yeah, but it's also it's it's conflicting for me because Aniel's not like a noble character. No. Not so really. it's not necessarily that we're sympathizing with him here. But when you see a character crying like that, you can't help but sympathize with them a little bit, but you know, how much do you sympathize with monsters like but also at that point, you don't know that he's the one who murdered Angel, which we're getting to. Right. But you just know that, like, he's an imposter. He's vertigoing her. Yeah. Or, feel... to put it in our mode of our terms, he's uh, la piel que habito, the skin I live in, in her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's cool. It just, it's, it just makes the whole meta story finally pay off, I feel like. So, at this scene... Uh, Enrique goes to his office. He's, you know, working on whatever directors work on in their office. And the real-life father right. comes in. Or rather, he's already in the office when Enrique gets there. And he's like, what are you doing in here? Who are you? And he goes, I'm the villain in your movie. I love that reveal. Because it's like, okay, we know who he is. And it's like he already acknowledges that like he knows what's going on in that line. And it works... In the context of I'm the villain in your movie, meaning the movie we're watching in the movie, and also yeah. the movie that we, the audience, are watching. Yeah. Because he's the bad father who did all the abuse. But the the way that he sort of, A, he's, he's still portrayed as like being super evil. <laughs> yeah. But he's, he's portrayed differently than the way that we see him in like the, the origin story. Totally. Because, and I think it's because like, he has zero scruples. And so then we get his side, his story. Right. He's being blackmailed by Ignacio. So there's just this complex morality here because Ignacio, who was molested as a child and like the trauma has basically led him to have a less than glamorous lifestyle, openly admits that he's a junkie, heroin addict. Transgender. Transgender. Has the tits, as he keeps calling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they do refer to Ignacio at this point as he still. Oh, do they? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he doesn't change his name either, though. No. Hmm. So it. I'm gonna refer to Ignacio even at this point uh, as a he because that's the way that all the other characters and kept his name this way. Sure. Uh, so he had the tits, but he was gonna go for full gender reassignment surgery, but needed to get cleaned up first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was blackmailing the father that molested him for a million pesos or not pesos pesados yeah something like that 
I don't know the currency. <laughs> right. Um, which is funny. It's such a turn because up until the point that you actually see Father Manolo's presentation of her, mm-hmm. Ignacio has been presented as this angel child. Yeah. Like with this heavenly voice. Yeah, to oh, him. definitely, yeah. And like this, he, he does. He looks like a little angel with his big ears and just like the yeah. sweetest little thing. But then like you get this cut and then he's got like kind of kind of a, a fucked up face yeah. and just like kind of a kind of a jerk too. Like not a great person. When I saw in this general. in theaters for the first time, the reveal of the real Ignacio with his tits hanging out and you know, he looked fucked up teeth from heroin abuse, and he just he just looked dirty. Like yeah. he looked be, like he'd be sticky to touch. Yeah, and it was just such a shock because yeah, we, we had built up this idea of what Ignacio is mm-hmm. while you're watching it, and then the reveal, the real one, is in stark contrast to what we've built up. Hola, señor Bringer. Soy Ignacio. Pase, por favor. You want to believe that he would grow up to look like Gal Garcia Bernal? <laughs> Yeah. You really want to believe that. Well, you kind of want to think that the heroes of your story overcome their trauma mm, to mm-hmm. do good things, but they really don't. Like, the trauma fucks them up, right? and they turn into terrible human beings. Which is a shame, because A, Ignacio wrote that great script that yeah. um, Enrique is like, I want to make a movie about this, and B, when we get views of Ignacio's apartment... There's, like, glimpses of a super creative person in there. They're, like, there's all this artwork that's, like, sort of squares painted Mm. that I'm just assuming is Ignacio's work because it's also, like, on the walls. It's painted that way, but you get a bunch of framed paintings of it, too. So you get this impression that not only is he a good writer, but he's also, like, a creative artist in some ways, too. So it's, like, it's a real shame to find out that he's also an asshole. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Very With openly blackmailing him and like really unapologetically a junkie. Yeah. And like steals his grandmother's pension, like as they mentioned like later on, like mm-hmm. and is unapologetic about it. You know, he comes into the apartment, he's like, I have the sweats, like I need heroin now. Yeah. And then Juan calls the mother because she just had a heart attack. And the grandmother is like, he stole my pension. I just got it. Not a likable character. Uh, yeah, as an audience, we want to sympathize with someone who's like survived trauma, but they're also like actively doing immoral things, like literally stealing from their own grandmother. Yeah, but how much of this can you believe? Because this is Father Manolo's account that we're watching. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I take it for face value, but, but I can't help but question it after all that we've seen up until that point. There's a level of ambiguity there, because because we are seeing all these stories unfold, but they're all definitely told from someone's perspective. Yeah. You know, it's being interpreted through someone else's lens, which, you know, they're going to paint it the way that they saw it. And that includes Amadovar's lens. Yeah. <laughs> The movie also does one thing that I love in a plot, and it, it's it's one of those tricks that I could never do if I were a screenwriter, which is having a dead character really be the forward, like, pushing device mm. in the narrative. Mm. Like, in Ignacio, as we find out throughout the movie, was dead before, like, the story started. Yeah. But 
he's the driving force for the narrative through the whole movie. Yeah. Which is always something that, like, I, I find interesting when you have, like, characters that either don't appear or that everyone's talking about and, you know, isn't on screen, but is the driving force of the story. Yeah. Uh, and this is one of those things. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like a, like a stupid twist. Like, and he was dead the whole time. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's an emotional scene when... Ignacio dies. Yeah. Even though it's happened in the past. Yeah. Um, long before this movie started. Yeah, Ignacio had been dead for like four years at this point. Yeah. When like the movie starts. But it's the actions of this dead person that is putting everything into motion. Yeah. Which, I that's one of those, like writing storyline things that I think is amazing. Yeah. You know, uh, Orson Welles always said that uh, if you ever get a chance to like pick a part in, in a movie or a play, you want to be the one that everyone talks about for the first act and doesn't show up till the second act. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things. It's like Ignacio is technically not, he only exists in flashbacks in this movie, but is the driving force of the film. Yeah. Never exists, and never exists as a real character. Like, it's all, Ignacio is always presented as somebody's side of the story. Yeah. You know, we don't actually yeah. ever see Ignacio. We just see, like, the myth of... Yeah, he, we of have him. him writing about himself, mm-hmm. or we, we potentially Viewed have, through Enrique's lens. Yeah. Viewed through Father Manolo's lens. Yeah. And then uh, viewed through Juan's lens, in a way, because yeah. he's, he's performing the yeah. part. Yeah. So, but, but we never actually see who Ignacio is. Yeah. Earlier, you know, I say I feel like this movie gets passed over a lot, and I think it's because it is such a queer movie. Oh, definitely. Like, it is... I think it's like... You know how Harvey Firstein was saying in The Cellular Closet? When people say to me, your work is not really gay work, it's universal. And I say, up yours, you know, it's gay. And that you can take it and translate it for your own life is very nice. But at last, I don't have to do the translating you do. Yeah. I feel like this is another movie in that vein where it's like, this is a movie for queers. Like, yeah. This is a movie for gay people and queers in general that if you're straight, you can come to it in however you want, but it's not for you. Yeah. Like, it... I don't feel like this is a movie that a lot of straight people like or get. Because everyone I've watched it with who is straight... Kind of is like that was interesting, but it's like this movie speaks to me on a very deep level. Oh, and that this is—I mean, this is the first Donald Glover film that I saw, but it like kickstarted a passion for his movies. Yeah, because it's like he got it. Yeah, like he 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 lives a queer life and lifestyle. Yeah, it reads really gay to me. Really, like it in in an unapologetic way. Yeah, like, this is a movie dealing with themes that. Straight people have to do the translating for, and I I love that. I appreciate that, and I didn't realize it really uh, until watching it for this podcast. About like I said earlier, how he makes movies where these aren't people struggle; these aren't gay characters struggling inwardly against society. You mm-hmm. know, they're not like conflicted in that way. Mm-hmm. They're fully realized gay characters. They're yeah, like, that part of me has been settled. Now I'm acting in the world. And, you know, I've mentioned this before. That's but empowering. One of my litmus tests 
or how good a gay movie is is if the story can be told with straight characters <laughs> and really there's just no way if, even if they were straight characters they would be non-binary characters they have to be yeah. because we have trans individuals in this and at the very least the characters are bisexual yeah like if you want to talk about juan and and father manolo like and but even then if you're if you're having non-binary characters like then is it really straight? Like, yeah. Can you label it that? Yeah. So, the, like, I just, I can't twist this movie to be, like, you couldn't have this movie mm-hmm. being played by straight characters, like cis, you know, hetero oh, characters. And that makes me sad that it gets passed over a lot because of that. I think it just illustrates how far we still have to go in that realm. Like, you know, people are like, yeah, gay marriage, we're equal now. But it's like, no, this is an incredible movie that gets passed over because it's gay. And yeah. that means that heterosexual people are still in charge because they're the ones who get to say that, like, oh, this isn't an important movie. So uh, in preparation for this, you know, I still go to Scarecrow all the time. And I was like, you know, I own both Bad Education and Women on the Verge. But mm-hmm. I own them on DVD. I was like, oh, well, let's see if any of them are on Blu-ray. Like, I'll pick it up, watch it in high def. And Women on the Verge is on Criterion Blu-ray. Oh, wow. Uh, just came out, like, a year or so, so ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, bad education still just dvd like yeah i'm so surprised that this one just gets passed over it's so good <laughs> yeah it, it really like just head to toe it has strong script strong performances and is immaculately directed and it's just as good as the movies on either side of it oh yeah you know just okay. as good if not the best one of those i don't know like, i mean i love I, all I, about my mother and i love talk to her yeah i, I do too and volver but it's like I feel like this one is just as just as good. Yeah, definitely. Soapbox done. Anyway, I have a really important question to ask you about this movie. Enrique's haircut. Good or bad? Mm, the like with... bangs, schlong situation. Yeah, I'm gonna go with bad. I did notice his hair a lot, and I'm like, ugh, I would have done something about that. Why did it do it for you? Turned you on? I've wanted that haircut several times, <laughs> and no hairstylist will give it to me. Because they're scared that I'm gonna hate it. Or, I don't know why. Or they're ashamed to admit that they that they did that haircut. No one will do it for me, and I think I would look great with that haircut. Really? Yeah. With your complexion? <laughs> I mean, I'm done with longer hair now anyway, so oh. like, it's not even a question anymore. But there were many times where I would show a picture of that to a hairdresser, and they'd be like... You came in with a picture of Enrique? Yes! Give me the bad education. <laughs> Give me the bangs and the long in the back. I want the 80 schlong from this movie. And, I don't know if you could do bangs. That's, for, I mean, the, the little wings in the back, yeah, of course, that looks good on anyone, but I don't know. I mean, I didn't think it looked good on him, though, either. <laughs> My eyes are always on, you know, GGB. Anyway, I don't have a really great way to close this out. Um, Other than, I really enjoyed watching these movies. Anytime I watch an Alma Devar movie, I 
wind up loving movies again. He makes films sort of in the style of like golden age of Hollywood, mm-hmm. but it's definitely through his own sensibilities. They're arty, but they focus on entertainment. Yeah, like they, they don't stamp on things like story. Like they don't get up their own ass in art. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're arty. They are very arty. He seems very well versed. Like he's not, you know, the type of director that I feel just watches one type of movie. I feel like he watches all types mm-hmm. and draws inspiration from a variety of sources, and is able to to turn it into something that you know is unique to him. Yeah. Like if you like movies, you're probably gonna like at least some of his movies. But if you're gay, especially because so many of his movies deal with you know, gender fluidity, non-binary, and it's it's not for shock. Like, it's part of the yeah. story. Empowered versions of characters like that. Yeah. Not ones that are struggling to find empowerment. They're already, you know, in the got-to-be-real category. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think uh, Bad Education could have ended with got-to-be-real? No tienes que darme más explicaciones. No es mía. Es de Ignacio. Well, do we have a preview of coming attractions for next season? Oh yeah, we're, we're going to be jumping into season five. This is a big season for us. Oh, we never thought we'd make it this far. I know, here we are. This is the syndication season. <laughs> yes! <laughs> if we did 24 episodes a season. <laughs> yeah, we're not that doing that. Yeah. Um, this previous season, season four, we started off with a sploosh, and this time... I want to start off with a Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Oh, okay. It's time to talk about Edgar Wright okay. and how much I adore him okay. as a director. Love lots to talk about. It's also hugely underappreciated, I feel. Hugely underappreciated. I think it kind of defines like new cult classic in mm-hmm. that it was just a movie that bombed at the box office, but then is gained a lot of traction in the home video department. I must own that movie. I mean, I watched it not too long ago. Yeah. Uh, well, you're going to have to watch it again. It's fine. Edgar Wright movies are absurdly easy to watch. And uh, reward repeated watches. Oh my god, let's plug our junk. We've been recording for a while. Subscribe, rate, review on iTunes. X-rated movies. You can follow us on Twitter, at X-rated movies. Uh, like or follow us on our Facebook page, at rated X movies. Also... Typey, typey, typey us and email at x.rated.movies at gmail.com. Uh, and we have a Patreon. Send us to PodCon. Yeah. Get us some new mics. Yeah. Help improve the quality of our audio. And, uh... Continue to listen and tell your friends. Yeah. We love all of you. We do. Because really only our family's listening. <laughs> we'll see you here in, in two weeks with yeah. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Bye! Bye. <laughs>